I'm Anna Horford, and you're listening to the Celtics Life Podcast. Welcome inside the Pick Swap Celtics Life Podcast crossover pod. The folks over at the Pick Swap are teaming up with me this week to talk about the soon approaching meeting between the Philadelphia 76ers and Boston Celtics. Each team's rebuilding context and what the future holds for two of the league's best young teams. I'm Justin Quinn of Celtics Life, and I'm here with Jesse Larch, Brandon Apter, and Josh Liddick of the Pick Swap Podcast, who also provides Sixers coverage for sportstalkphilly.com. You can follow them at, at Sixerdelphia, S-I-X-E-R-D-E-L-P-H-I-A, that's a mouthful, guys, on Twitter. How's it going? It's going well. Great to be here. Likewise. So we've got two teams that started the rebuild roughly the same time. I would say 2000, the end of the end of 2013, 14, we've got, well, we had two GMs, and now we have three. We can talk about that in a minute. The Celtics obviously were doing much better with the, with the title recently, but by the time it was time to blow it up, the, the two teams weren't that far apart in terms of where they were in the title contention picture out of it. So, we have Ainge, Danny Ainge on one hand, and Sam Henke, and I don't know how you guys feel about Brian Colangelo and his dad. Do you guys do you guys look at him, you know, coming in at the behest, behest of the league as kind of, you know, a unitary entity of two people, or, or would you say that Brian Colangelo really, like, took over that program? I think it's Brian Colangelo's team. It's his show that he's running right now. Um, I think – a lot of the Sixers fan base still kind of wishes Hinky was here, especially after that New Orleans Noel trade last year at the trade deadline. But I think with Colangelo, what he brings that Hinky didn't was kind of a different kind of aggressiveness where Hinky was very aggressive in his race to the bottom, which got us to where we're at now with you know the bright future the Sixers have. Colangelo seems to be much more apt to pull the trigger on a move to make us into contenders which we didn't see Hinky do, and he very well may have been willing to once he got to that stage. But Colangelo has come in and shown that willingness, you know, in overpaying for J.J. Redick and Amir Johnson to get the bench players that he wanted and to also pull the trigger on an aggressive move to get Markel Fultz in the draft. So I think he's a guy that's definitely committed to winning and committed to the next level of the process. It's just not the guy that Sixers fans expected to see doing it. So about that, how do you guys feel collectively – about the switch from Hickey to Colangelo personally. I mean, I, I think I was a little broken up at first, uh, but, but it didn't surprise. I mean, it didn't surprise me at all because once, once the league kind of stepped in and put Jerry Colangelo in that spot, you kind of, you kind of knew that, that Sam Hinkie's tenure was, was getting towards the end of it. Um, and I think it's one of those things almost in baseball where you have a manager to manage your young talent and then you get the guy, uh, the veteran manager that, uh, will be able to coach them and manage them to a championship. And I think that's kind of uh, the purpose that Sam Hinkie did. He was there to get all the assets and then set them up for success in the future. And I think Colangelo is that guy, uh, that will hopefully be able to do it. Yeah, I, 
Yeah, I think that uh, I think that with the whole thing with Sam Henke is that I think a lot of people wanted him to do certain things with the team and eventually get to that level where they can contend with Sam Henke at the helm. Um, and uh, you know, now you have Brian Colangelo there, and I think that a lot of people are wondering, you know, what what could have been with Sam Henke. Uh, as the general manager of this team to turn this team into t- uh, championship contenders if he would have stayed a little bit longer uh, to see the the process kind of um, unveil itself with the players that they received. Um, I think Sam Henke was, uh, he, he was able to, um, I think he was, he left, you know, they kind of forced him out because, you know, of the tanking and all that stuff. But, you know, I think that he was able to get things out of the process like Joel Embiid and some other guy and you know Okafor didn't really turn out and but the assets that they were able to get they were able to draft Markel Fultz and that was Brian Colangelo's guy but I think that Sam Henke um, at the end of the day um, you know I I would have liked to see him kind of be the guy to lead this team to a championship eventually. I think if Josh Harris had it his way that Hinky never would have left because, I mean, there's obviously the speculation and it's kind of grown past speculation. It's kind of become a fact that hasn't been outwardly said that Adam Silver stepped in and placed the Colangelos, who are known confidants of his, into the Sixers organization because he wasn't happy with an organization that was losing on purpose. But I think Josh Harris was fully committed to Sam Hinky. We kind of saw that when we made the move to get Markel Fultz or when, when the pick swap happened mm-hmm. at this year's draft lottery and we moved up from five to three because of that pick swap, Josh Harris actually said, thank you, Sam Hinkie, which you would never hear an owner say about an ex-general manager. So I think that's a real sign that Josh Harris was committed fully to the process and committed to Sam Hinkie and that his hands were tied by the league in that whole situation. Yeah, and I think it's 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 two different ones too. I know you had uh, Justin, you had talked about how it was kind of two different rebuilds. They both started at the same time, but I feel like the Sixers and and Hinky, uh, you know, you put that tanking word there, and I feel like the Sixers put a lot more lineups out there and just put more rosters together that just could not win NBA games. While on the other hand, I feel like the Celtics made kind of like strategic moves to to get those assets. Uh, you know, and get to where they are now while also making trades to acquire, uh, you know, up and coming talent, you know, like an Isaiah Thomas or something like that. So uh, I think uh, we all suffered a a little bit much more through the process than we all wanted to. Um, I saw way too many Tony Roten games for, for my self to be able to handle but uh yeah i mean I, I think obviously it's two different sides but i think the sixers fans and sixers faithful kind of suffered a little bit more because they were legitimately starting lineups of guys that you you know would never get even a bench spot on other nba rosters well you guys seem like you took it pretty well considering well the whole key to it, yeah i mean you look at well, the now, now. <laughs> the whole key was the whole reason i think it worked because philly is notorious for being impatient and I mean, there's a saying that the most popular player in Philadelphia is always the backup quarterback, which isn't true this year. But in years past, I mean, think of Jeff Garcia and how much we all wanted him to stay over Donovan McNabb. And now it's, you know, that shows that level of impatience that the city has with its sports. But because Hinky came in and really from the outset told the fan base, look, I've got a plan. 
I'm guaranteeing you long-term success, but it's not going to be pretty for the first chunk. He goes, we're going to lose. We're not going to be pretty. And it's, you know, expect it. But when it's over, it will be worth it. And because he was that honest from day one, I think that's why the fans are willing to wait, especially because a lot of fans were very cold on an Evan Turner or an Andre Iguodala-led team, as much as I loved Andre Iguodala, and I still do. I think... Well, everybody thought he was going to be the next coming of Alan. Yeah, which was an unreal expectation. But I think he was... You know, I was very happy when he went to Golden State and got the finals MVP. You know, I'm still very happy for him where he's at in his career, but he wasn't the guy to get the Sixers to the next level. He's a role player. He isn't a lead dog, and that's what Hinky was about. He wanted to build a team that was going to be full of lead dogs. And that's kind of where they're headed right now. There's still some, still a little bit of things you need to see fall out still, but they're on the right path. And because he promised that we were going to be bad first, the expectations were low and nobody put the heat on him the way they do with our other teams in the city. So from a Celtics perspective, personally, and I may not represent a lot of Celtics fans, but I think that this was a very good strategy for the rules that exist from a consumer slash, I don't know, league strength standpoint, I can see. And to a certain extent with multiple years, if the fan base is not pleased, see the problem with multiple years of tanking, but I also don't necessarily have a problem with gaming the system for, you know, shorter terms, or if you could convince your fan base longer terms. However, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about what Ainge has done in his rebuild. I think what he's done really well is like Brandon kind of alluded to was that he hasn't really sacrificed much along the way. Um, he's, you know, he's had the moves or I know that a lot of the criticism for him was that he had stockpiled all of the assets and it seemed like he was never going to yeah. cash them in, which is, you know, he kind of, you know, he did it this year. We're getting Kyrie Irving and he still has some to play with. And I think now he's going to, now that he's getting closer to the end goal, you'll see him be more willing to part with them, but he still just overall feels like he's going to be stingy with them for whatever reason he's got. Now he has Gordon Hayward in the back pocket where the injury is just traumatic as it was. And I was just shattered the NBA world. I don't think there was a fan of any team that felt good about that, but I think, yeah, I mean, that would just be classless. But I think with now that he has this, that the Celtics are playing so well without the guy that's supposed to get them over the hump, and they look like they can contend without him, I think that's kind of in Ainge's back pocket now to again not part with those pieces, knowing that he's going to have Gordon Hayward coming back into the fold. I think at some point he'll have to make a decision with Smart, Brown, Tatum, and Hayward all being on the wing, and Rozier. So I think that's going to be the big decision to come for them, and they can definitely use help in uh, in the front court. I mean, Kelly Olynyk I thought was a good fit for you guys. And, I mean, I might be one of the few that like him, but... I liked him. He was too inconsistent for a lot of us, and, you know, honestly, for what I thought he was about to earn, about what he made... But yeah, I think he's I just always been an effective player in the NBA, and I think he's continued that in his minutes in Miami. Um, and Whiteside was down at the start of the year. He made me a lot of money in DraftKings this year. <laughs> so, I mean, I that's part of, I think he's just an efficient player. Um, and that's what you're kind of missing right now is that presence. Al Horford's playing fantastic, though. If you could just get 
you know, a piece in at the deadline to back him up. I could see the Celtics doing a lot this year. Yeah, and and you look back so far uh, with what he's done, you know, everything from uh, fleecing the Nets uh, when they traded Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Jason Terry for a 2014 first, 2016 first, and a 2018 first that netted them Jalen Brown, uh, just to name one. Uh, and, and then you go all the way back to like when when he dealt uh, that package in, in 07 when he traded uh, Wally Zerbiak and Delonte West and got Ray Allen and Glenn Davis that came together and uh, formed a pretty good team with with Paul Pierce. So uh, I think obviously he's he's gotten a lot of scrutiny uh, over the last few years. But I mean, you don't really hear much anymore because he's built up his assets and he's used them well. And, uh, you know, going into this year's draft, like, of course, I wanted the Sixers to draft Markel Fultz, but I, I was would have been perfectly content with them staying at three and drafting Jason Tatum and having seen him play so far, you know, and again, we haven't seen Markel Fultz a, a whole lot yet at all, so we don't really know what he is. But I mean, Jason Tatum, especially after the Gordon Hayward injury, uh, that trade uh, to to move down to number three is looking even better for the Celtics now than than it looks for the Sixers at this point. But I mean, as you know, he's made a lot of good deals dating back uh, quite some time, and I think it's right now you can only call it a success. And, I, and you pick up a guy like Al Horford too in free agency. I think he adds like a really good veteran stability to to the front court there as well. Yeah, I think with Danny Ainge is that the, you know, the whole thing was that he wanted to get these kind of players, he wanted to get stars and he was never able to get that star. They were so close last year um, in free agency and getting Kevin Durant and they missed out on him. You know, they, they brought the house, they brought, you know, uh, Tom Brady to, to recruit him there and he wasn't able to get him to come. And then Russell Westbrook was available where they could have tried to get him and he, he wasn't able to come and you keep missing out on star after star after star. And now we're here in this um, you know, this year they were able to get Kyrie Irving in that trade. Um, they were, you know, they were the number one seed last year in the playoffs and uh, were ousted by the Cavs in uh, five games, but uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals. But you know, Danny Ainge had a plan, and he had a plan, you know, with the the guys that he had, with the assets that he had, that he was going to take something as risky as trading Isaiah Thomas, who was, you know, the leader of this team, you know, a, you know, an icon in the city of Boston and uh, trading Jay Crowder, who was, who's a great wing player, a great defender, three point shooter as a small forward. Um, and, and, and they traded him to Cleveland for, um, you know, to, to, to get Kyrie Irving over and then also signing Gordon Hayward, who was the biggest free agent signing. So I think, you know, Ainge, they were a good team last year, but Ainge did a lot this uh, past offseason to get them to be contenders, um, even more so than they were last year in a, in a position for them to get to the NBA Finals. So I think Ainge, you know, he's done. He tried to get certain players last year, uh, wasn't able to get them. But, you know, it's kind of turned into something where now he can uh, you're, you're seeing kind of the uh, the riches of what's going on there in Boston. Well, let's dive into what has got both of our teams to where they are now, starting with the draft. So last year, last draft, we had Jason Tatum and Markel Fultz. It sounds to me like you guys are still pretty up on Markel. I am too. I think that he hasn't had a chance. You know, I don't know what's going on with the the muscular imbalance, to be honest. I've never even heard of anything like that until it happened to him. 
Um, I would love to hear your opinions on that. And also, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but like, if you could go back in time, who would you think you would draft if you were the GM? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, we don't we don't really know what Markel Fultz is. Uh, his situation is so weird um, w- with what's going on with his shoulder. Heck, I, I don't even know what scapula and balance really even is. I don't think a lot of us really know what that is. So to see a guy that's that's you know was such a sharp shooter in college uh, come in and and look good in, in summer league and you know, to change a shot like that, it's just kind of baffling. So I think that's obviously the big concern for, for everybody with the Sixers, but having been so patient for the process years, I think people are, are a little more patient with this, especially because now we have a, a healthy Embiid and a healthy Ben Simmons, uh, you know, right now. And, uh, you know, going going back and looking at it, uh, I, I would, again, I, I would probably stay at three and, and take Jason Tatum. I think he was a very safe pick at that point. Uh, obviously, you have Ben Simmons that's kind of at that same point forward spot. Uh, so maybe they didn't believe that uh, he was going to fit in Brett Brown's lineup. But again, if I if I were the GM at that time, I, I probably would have just stayed three and taken like the known commodity uh, in Tatum because you know that he can score and everything. But again, Fultz can do the same thing. None of us have really expected to to see what we're seeing now. My opinion going into the draft was that Tatum was definitely the highest floor player. I think there was virtually no chance he would come in and not be productive. I think it would just be how productive he could become. Um, but with Markel Fultz and the Sixers, the Sixers the whole time have all been, been about the long view and about the ceiling. And Markel Fultz, I still think, has the highest ceiling of any player in this draft. I mean, his player comparison was James Harden. And I, I mean, I'm James Harden's my favorite NBA player. And I think there's a lot of things to Markel's game that lend itself to the comparison. I'll, I'll never say that he's going to be James Harden because that's just such a lofty and unfair expectation. But things that he can do, I mean, he's so good at creating his own shot. And what he does really well is the way he moves with the ball. It has that sneaky quickness that kind of lulls defenders to sleep. He's very good at getting to the rim. I think he profiles as a scoring machine. Um, I, I think I said to someone the other night, I think that those three of Embiid, Simmons, and Fultz in like by next year will be averaging 65 points a game together. And I think that's where that can go. But, you know, obviously there's concern around Markel right now. I just, I don't share the concern that a lot of the pundits do. I think it's just a minor thing, especially after we waited two years for Embiid and one year for Simmons. You know, I don't mind waiting a couple months for Markel Fultz to get right because it was worth it in those two. And days. I think if if Markel Fultz was drafted two years ago, though, and we didn't have him beat in Simmons, I think it would be equally as frustrating. That, that's what makes it better, you know. Having Simmons and Embiid makes it better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think with Markel Fultz, you know, the getting Fultz uh, was was a pretty big deal. But I think at the time we were almost trying to figure out who they were going to take. Because uh, I didn't think that the Sixers were going to be able to get the number one pick. I didn't even think about it until it happened. Um, and then they made the trade with the Boston Celtics. Um, but getting, uh, you know, with, uh, um, I thought maybe De'Aaron Fox would be a possibility for the Sixers to get. And uh, I never really thought of Jason Tatum as somebody that the Sixers would would try to go get. But, uh, you know, I thought about Fox and I also thought about um, Malik Monk. And we're looking at, 
you know, Fox has been okay for Sacramento so far. Um, I mean, he's, he had that game winner shot, shot against the uh, Sixers a couple weeks ago. Um, and then Monk struggled. Uh, but in a full, we don't really know what he's going to be, but we know that he does have a ceiling. So I'm okay with what they did and I'm okay with the trade. Uh, I am looking at Jason Tatum and looking at how good he's been so far for them. And he's almost had to step into a situation that he didn't foresee himself getting into in the preseason with Gordon Hayward going down with the injury. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I like, you know, I, I like the idea that Fultz can turn into something and we didn't know what Embiid was going to be because he was out for, for that long. And now Fultz, um, you know, it, hopefully it's not as serious as Embiid's injury was, but, um, I'm liking what, what I'm seeing, uh, in terms of optimism here. So we have the year before Jalen Brown and Ben Simmons, you know, two, two wing players with very distinct skill sets, but both of them are looking like they are going to be stars. What are your thoughts on the two of them in comparison? Um, I, I think, uh, I, I think they're, they're two very good players. And like you, like you just said, uh, they're they're going to be very good in their own ways. Um, I think Jalen Brown was unfairly judged in his first year. Uh, not everybody adjusts right away. Uh, he got the experience of being on a playoff team, a team that was the number one seed in the conference, and I think that's really starting to show. And and now that that him and Tatum are put into a bigger spotlight with with Hayward sidelined. Uh, I think he's kind of stepped in and really embraced that role. I mean, he's he's shooting over 41% from three, uh, over 46% overall, uh, which is well above his his so far career averages. So uh, I think he offers a lot more when it comes to obviously the shooting. Uh, but I think, and this isn't being biased at all, I think if you watch Ben Simmons at all, you kind of see what kind of player you have. Uh, I think Simmons is going to be the better player because you can see how dominant he can be and he doesn't even need a a mid-range jump shot or or a three-point shot. He attacks the basket with tenacity. Um, He's an assist machine. His court vision is is unreal. Um, And and he's very active on both both sides of the glass too. So I think they're going to be very good players, but I think obviously, I mean, as I watch it now, I think Simmons is going to be the clear and cut uh, better, better star out of the two. Unsurprisingly, I disagree. But I feel so stupid because Go going into the draft that year, I mean, the big feeling, because we had so many big men, it was always that the Sixers need a shooter. And I was like, well, Brandon Ingram's a shooter. Maybe we should go with him instead. You know, I was at the time, I was one of those was the argument that, like, well, he didn't get his team to the tournament. How good can he really be? I mean, I changed my mind to that. As soon as they picked him, I was okay with taking him because of the upside. I was just thinking Ingram would have been a good pick too. Looking now, even with Ben just, you know, 19 games into his NBA career, it's so far, it's so far and away between him and Brandon Ingram and not a knock on Jalen Brown, but so far and away between him and Jalen Brown where, I mean, Brown has come leaps and bounds from where he was at last year, but Ben Simmons is on the floor and he's putting up Oscar Robertson numbers in his first 19 games. I mean, this is a level of player that changes the course of a franchise. And while Jalen Brown is going to be a key part of a franchise that's going to be very good in the NBA for the next five to ten years, I mean, Ben Simmons is just the kind of guy that leads that franchise. 
I mean, it's not too often you see a player jump from barely able to stay on the floor because of defenses lapses to top five in defensive win shares in just one season. So that's what I'm basing at least early on my estimation of Brown as, as a more complete player, at least right now. I definitely see what you're seeing. I'm just skeptical that it's going to... I, I, I think both players have the ability to keep growing, but at least for now, I think that Jalen Brown is showing a slightly broader range of skill sets. I think that in the case of Simmons, what we're seeing is some hyper-specialization along a couple of key skills, and I do think that that is going to serve him very, very, very well. But I, I wonder if that lack of a mid-range and his, his his tendency to, you know, Kevin O'Connor has this fetish I'm sure you're aware of that he shoots with the wrong hand. I, I think that there might be something to that. And at the very least, if he doesn't unlock that shooting ability, that that is really going to hold him back. If he can get past that. I think that we have a, a much stronger debate on who is going to be a better player. But I'm also very confident that he's going to fix the shooting. I don't think, I mean, you know, I, I hate to say the comparison, but it's the one he's always connected to because of their friendship off the court. When LeBron entered the league, he was not a very good shooter from mid range and from three, and he's become one over his career. And I think with LeBron's influence on Ben Simmons and just, I'm not sure if you've heard any of Ben Simmons post game comments, but he'll post a triple-double, or he'll have another night that's just ridiculous on the stat sheet, and they'll ask him about it, and he goes, did we win the game? That's all I care about. And all the guy wants to do is get better and keep improving. He's not focused on his stats at all. He puts up crazy stat lines, but he's not focused on that one bit. He's focused on winning basketball games, and I think part of that includes him getting better. I mean, Again, I, I'm not sure if you realize this or not because it's the kind of thing that goes viral here, but maybe not nationally. All summer, Ben Simmons' Instagram story and his Snapchat and all that is him in the Sixers training facility at 4 a.m. I mean, all the guy is doing is working. It's insane that he's already this good, and he's just so determined to get better. You could you could sub in Jalen Brown for, for exactly the same thing. That's basically what he was doing. And, yeah, that's, that's basically the same thing. I didn't catch any of that. I mean, I do follow him, but – Teaching shooting is one of the more teachable skills in the NBA. So don't take it as any, like, you know, kind of like one of those hot takes that you hear out there that, that he's just not going to come along. I do think that with the mindset, I have caught that, like the post-game commentary of him talking about only wanting to win. That definitely did bubble through. And that's that's actually something that has come up through Jalen Brown. So I, I really do anticipate Quite an interesting rivalry between those guys coming through, seeing as they came through the same year. We also had some potentially interesting players in Gershon Yabusele and Timothy Luwabu Cabarro. If you asked me to say those names <laughs> two years ago, it wouldn't have gone as smoothly as it just did. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on those two players in comparison? I know you, you may not know too much about, as we like to call him, the Dancing Bear. I, I will be completely honest with you. I have only caught a little bit of, of uh, TLC, as you guys call him. He's he's an interesting player to me. I think he's got a future in the league, but some of the things that he was advertised as, as, as you know being good at haven't really you know, taken hold on court at the NBA level. So I'd like to hear your thoughts as far as you're able to. 
I think with TLC, he took a last year. He went from getting no minutes to the end of the year. He was getting 15 to 25 a night. And as he got the extended minutes, he began to become a better player. I mean, as you'd expect, but he did it, you know, his defense got better. His knowing when the cut got better, the decisions with the ball got better. And now this year he put a lot of work into his three point shot this off season. And he seems very determined to make it work. And it's not working. Um, That's been one of the biggest flaws with him and the Sixers as a team this year is that they get into this mode where they feel like they have to shoot threes and they don't hit them and it kind of puts them back. You know, they'll be running away with the game and then they'll give the game back by doing it. TLC has been a guy that has done that a lot this year. He's trying to play outside of his skill set instead of letting the game come to him. So I think when he does that, he'll be a much more valuable bench player. But, I mean, he's got to learn to rein it in right now. Well, we saw we saw uh, TLC kind of play that role against Cleveland where he on Monday night where he kind of, uh, you know, he took threes every once in a while. But then we saw him kind of drive to the to the rim and get layups and and do that, quote unquote, French touch thing that he's so good at doing sometimes where he's able to get the good layup in and make it look pretty and and, and get, you know, assists from TJ McConnell and some other guys. But, you know, I, I think that TLC, um, we saw him kind of show case his abilities last year a little bit more when he was getting those more minutes at the towards the end of the season um where he would be able to get the 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 outside shot going every once in a while but it's just clear that you know his shot just isn't there um and he doesn't really he takes a lot of three pointers a, a large quantity of them and when they don't fall he just keeps shooting them and then you're like watching the TV screen. And you're like, what the heck is going on? Can we just yell at this guy to stop shooting three pointers? Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm like Jesse said earlier on, I, I'm not I'm not really big on TLC as much anymore. Uh, I think there, there's other options, um, I think, for them. But, uh, you know, unless he start keeps getting better. I mean, there's always. Yeah, I think this is a situation where, uh, you know, he's not like a very beloved player on the Sixers, but. Uh, you, you see who TLC is coming into the game for, and you you realize he's still a young NBA player. He's played a lot in France, but he's coming in for Covington and he's coming in for Redick, who both are three point shooters by nature. Uh, Covington doesn't drive to the basket much. Redick's game is the three point game. So, I, I mean, if you ask me, I, I think it's one of those things that, that goes into his development. And it might be a little more mental than we think. So uh, I think maybe shooting threes yeah. is just something that he expects that he has to do in order to fill in for a Covington or, or a Redick. Uh, but, but I mean, that's why I like a guy like Nick Stauskas, honestly. Uh, he's not going to put up gigantic numbers, and a lot of people just don't think he deserves a roster spot. Uh, but he can make the occasional three while also driving to the basket. He doesn't play outside of his skill set. And like Jesse said earlier, that's what TLC is doing. I think he needs to get back to playing his game and stop relying on, you know, necessarily what, you know, what the guys that he's replacing when he comes into the game. So I'm assuming you guys haven't seen too much of Yabusele. Well, don't feel bad. We haven't really seen too much of him either. Those of us who have been following him with the red claws overseeing China, he has been coming along, but I think that the uh, TLC has really benefited from being able to play in the NBA. Yaboselli has not been able to get much playing time at the NBA level, almost none, to be honest. He actually does have a lot of the same problems that, that Timothy is dealing with also shooting the three a little bit more than he probably should be, even in the limited minutes that he's getting. He's just not converting the way he should. 
Uh, he's not just getting the reps to develop. We just sent him to our D-League team to get some reps up there because he's basically been deep freeze most of the season so far. So hopefully that gets him into more of game shape so we can actually see him on the court more. But we also have some other players to get into. In 2015, you guys drafted Jaleel Okafor. We drafted Terry Rozier. Would you guys switch if you had the opportunity? I would switch. I Yeah, <laughs> I would switch. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure we could have a whole separate podcast about the Jaleel Okafor situation that's going on right now Absolutely. in Philly. Uh, he's, uh, but the bottom line is he had, he had a good rookie year, uh, and he was pretty much the primary scorer for the Sixers that year. So I think people, uh, looked more to, to his offense than they looked to his defense. Uh, and then when you have guys like Nerlens Noel, uh, even Rashawn Holmes and obviously Joel Embiid to come play center, you realize the inefficiencies Okafor has on the other side of the court. And the, the, this, this NBA that we are watching now doesn't fit into what Okafor's game is. I mean, he put in a lot of work over the offseason. Uh, he lost 20 pounds, cut meat out of his diet. Um, and, and we saw some shades of, of potential again uh, in the preseason. And obviously, we know where it is from there. He's not in the rotation. He's not going to play. Um, and I think, obviously, with them not picking up his option... Uh, they're okay with just letting him walk. I don't foresee them getting any sort of value for him, especially as an expiring contract. Uh, nobody really wants to give up a second round pick for him when he was on contract. So I don't really know how that changes now. Uh, and I, I, again, I think Terry Rozier would be is a great spark plug off the bench. I mean, he can, he can go for 20, 25 in a night if he comes off a bench on a, on, a, on a good night. And it's good to have that scoring option. And I don't think the Sixers necessarily have that. I think that's what they want uh, Luau Cabarro to develop into or something like that. Or maybe when Markel Fultz comes back, he develops into that bench scorer. But I love Rozier's speed. I love his game. Uh, I love his size because he's so versatile in what he's able to do. Mid-range, three-point and drive to the hoop and, and dish it to uh, his teammates. So, I mean, I, I would take Rozier over Okafor in this one. Uh, but again, I think it's unfortunate how Okafor is still kind of on the team rotting away on the Sixers bench. I think he does have a place in today's NBA, but, you know, it's he's got to come to terms with the fact that he's probably going to be lucky if he can break double-digit millions at this point because backup bigs like Aaron Baines, which would be the best analog I could come up with for him on the Celtics – they just aren't going to make that kind of money anymore, particularly in a cap constrained environment. I think a lot of fans, like the whole free jaw movement, I'm with it in the sense that the Sixers have treated him so horribly. But if you notice, there's a whole free jaw movement. The Sixers are only asking for a second round pick and not one team is biting on it, which tells you a lot about where Okafor's at. I kind of find that weird. You see, the reason why I find it weird is because it is an expiring contract, and with so many teams above the cap rate now, it's a great way to get almost $5 million off your books. I mean, the Sixers are planning on getting him off the books to begin either way. That's why they didn't exercise his option. But a team could get him, and I'm pretty sure that team could still exercise his option, and they could get him for another year. So it wouldn't be an expiring contract. He still has one year left on his rookie deal. And uh, I think if – I mean, a lot of the people are saying, like, free job, it's – I think it's more because of how he's been treated because a lot anyone that's watched him or the majority that have watched him, 
understand that he's a very limited player. And I think that comes from, I mean, he's got a great post presence, but not even just his defense, which is laughable at times, but there's a lot of mental lapses. It seems like with his game, Um, there is poor shot selection. We talked about his great rookie season. I think that came a lot from volume on a team that was very bad. You know, I don't, I don't think he would really repeat that. I think he could be like a, a 13 and eight player, but he'll never be that 17 and 10 guy or 17 and nine, whatever he had that season. But he rolls out of bed and gets 20 and 10. That's what I'm told. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that too. You guys had uh, Willie Hernan Gomez and Rishon Holmes in that draft. We didn't have anybody else. What do you guys think about those guys? Are those guys keepers? Any potential in them? Should we be keeping an eye on them over in Celtics land? What are your thoughts on them? Well, Hernan Gomez is gone now, so uh, we don't have him around anymore. Oh, is he? Yeah. Really? I didn't know that. Well, he's, he's, on, he's with, with the, the Knicks. Knicks yeah, I, think so. yeah. I think Gilly's with the Knicks. Yeah. I thought that was his brother. Okay. All right, yeah, so okay. we don't have him anymore. He's on one of those teams that starts with an N or a silent K. Right. I, did, did he even – did Hernan Gomez even play for the Sixers at, 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 at no, any point? I don't think so. No. Uh, Holmes, though, is uh, is playing, and uh, now he's dealing with a, with a wrist injury, so he hasn't really played a whole lot. And actually, they've been using Amir Johnson, your old boy, and uh, with the Celtics a lot more recently. And Johnson, I wrote I wrote an article about Johnson uh, the other day, and um, I think that he's been playing pretty well off the bench for the Sixers as of late. Uh, he's been getting that spark plug, uh, being a shot blocker every once in a while, getting those defensive rebounds, uh, not really being a whole scoring uh, threat, but he's definitely playing really well. And I think that you have, um, you know, Brett Brown's trying to make the best out of the minutes for Amir Johnson, as well as uh, Rashawn Holmes, especially with that wrist injury. Um, But Rashawn Holmes is, uh, he played really well last year uh, in the minutes that he soaked up when Embiid went down with the meniscus injury and he was out for the rest of the season. We were able to see a lot more from Holmes at the center position. And I think that we were going to see him be the backup this year. And while he's still recovering from that injury, I think we're going to start to see him play a lot more. I think Brown's been kind of easing him into the rotation more and more. Um, But I like what I see from Rashawn Holmes. I thought that was a good pick for them. Um, and he kind of went from that G League kind of persona. Now he's you know back with the Sixers and and being some uh, a big role for this team. Yeah, I think Rashawn Holmes over the last two years has been one of my favorite Sixers to watch. Uh, he's never really been pushed into a starting role uh, up until last year, like Josh said, when he got hurt for uh, when when uh, Embiid got hurt, so he kind of stepped into the spotlight, and and he had phenomenal second half numbers, averaging over 13 points and seven rebounds a game. And uh, when he enters the court, he brings an energy and a spark uh, that that Brett Brown has spoken about so many times. Uh, you know, even the nights where he doesn't get minutes and Amir Johnson plays primary backup, Rashawn Holmes is the first guy standing up after one of his players does something big on the court he's the first guy welcoming the welcoming the players back to the bench giving him a high five i think he's a great teammate um i wish he was playing more minutes i I don't necessarily think that amir johnson uh, is is getting more minutes because of an injury i think amir johnson's just playing better right now but holmes is pretty much what you want in a backup center he's a pick and roll machine he's also extremely cost effective on that second round deal and i think that's part of the motivation with not sticking with Okafor after this oh, year because yeah. you have 
Holmes on a significantly cheaper contract. And I think with the Sixers about to become players in free agency, they're at that point now, cost starts to matter. And I think that's part of Holmes' value, especially if this is just a one-year stint for Amir Johnson and he ends up somewhere else next year. You can always lean on Rashawn Holmes, who I think he could start for some teams in the NBA. Granted, the NBA is a kind of weak with big men at this time, but he's definitely a guy that I think has tremendous value off the bench and wouldn't be surprised if he ends up starting for some team at some point in his career. So back to Amir real quick. What do you guys, I know this is you know off topic a little bit, but since it's in the conversation a bit here, what are you guys' opinions of him playing for you guys? For us, he was always real great the first five minutes of playing time, and then after that it was just like basically like a cliff. Uh, I, th- I think uh, for, for what we've seen in the past, uh, he's he's a refreshing change from having uh, a Jaleel Okafor as a backup. I, I know Holmes served as a primary backup last year, uh, but I think Amir Johnson was was kind of serving as as the veteran guy and just played himself into more minutes. And I think uh, the fact that he knows where to be defensively, uh, and then he sprinkles in offense every now and then. I mean, you look at some nights. Uh, the other night against uh, Portland, he was a plus 11, but he only scored four points, but he had 11 rebounds. He was a plus 20 against Utah, and he only had a point, but he had seven rebounds too. So, I mean, I think when he's on the floor, uh, it's not as big of a step back as as it was at the beginning of the year. He didn't have a positive game until the fifth game of the season. So I think people were ready to turn on him really quickly. Uh, but I think he he's really done well, and I think he's become the primary backup to Embiid uh, for the most part over the last few games, strictly because his rebounding has been really good, especially on the offensive glass. Yeah, and and um, also he he had that game against Utah. I was there at the Wells Fargo Center for that game, and afterwards the the players really like him because they said that he was the team MVP of the game. Um, and he, while he doesn't score very often and he hasn't been that kind of score. I know that the reason why they got him in the first place was he, um, you know, it was $11 million for one year. Um, he was a veteran. He was able to bring that leadership over from Boston where they were just in the playoffs. And he kind of brings that. He was able, he, sometimes he can shoot threes, but not very rarely. And he's not really, he hasn't done it much. Uh, well here in Philadelphia, but he does this thing where he like, in that game against Portland, he had that monster block on uh, Damian Lillard uh, where he just blocked the bejesus out of him. Um, and he kind of brings that kind of level of intensity that the players really rally around. You see that with Philadelphia. These guys are so tough. The city's tough. TJ McConnell's a tough guy. Rashawn Holmes is a tough guy. Amir Johnson brings that kind of aggression as well when he's down playing defense. Um, and that's what the players really rally around. That's what the fans like too. Well, Josh, you mentioned you went to the Utah game. I went to the home opener against Boston, and I went to the Portland game. And Boston Mm -hmm. and Portland were night and day. You mentioned how his first five games, he had minuses in all of them. When I went against Portland, Brandon, you were actually at that game too. What I noticed is he was always in the right spot, even watching on TV. I never see him miss a defensive or offensive rotation. You know, he's a great pick-and-roll player. He's a great guy on defense. He never loses his man. He's always got the rim protected one way or another, whether it's just to contest a shot, to grab a rebound. I mean, last night against Cleveland, where I thought the Sixers should have been leading at halftime last night against Cleveland, and the only reason I thought that was because Dario Saric and Amir Johnson combined for eight offensive rebounds. Amir had three of them, 
in a, I believe it was an eight or a nine minute run or in the first half, which is absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, the guy is just so effective in the dirty areas of the court that he opens everything up for everybody else. You know, he isn't a great scorer. He's not a points guy, but he does the things that win games. Um, a lot like a Tyson Chandler for the Mavericks back when they won their championship, but really as Tyson Chandler's on his whole career is a lot how I see Amir Johnson, just a very good leader, a very good presence, and a very responsible player. Fair assessment. So we've got one more trade from each of our rebuilds. I don't think it's very controversial to say that almost anyone would take Joel Embiid, even with the knees, over Marcus Smart. There might be a couple of Celtics fans in the who disagree, but rather than you know kind of kind of construct a stilted argument in that sense would you guys be interested in marcus smart and free agency i think he's a perfect fit for brett brown i was gonna say jesse take this one (laughs) (laughs) i know how i know how much jesse loves marcus smart so i mean i i've been saying for years i think you know he gets a lot of people give him a lot of grief and i don't really understand it because he's such a good defender um, I covered a game last year of Celtics vs. Sixers, and he had eight steals in one game. And I think what the Sixers are really missing right now is a defensive stopper off the bench. And I think that could definitely be Marcus Smart. I think his shooting has come a long way from where it was. I know he still has the stigma of being a poor shooter or poor shot selection, but it's nothing the Sixers aren't dealing with right now anyway. So if we can get a boost on the defensive side at a reasonable price, I would absolutely take him. Brett Brown loves to play in transition, loves to play from the defense out, and that's everything Marcus Smart does right. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I think he would be a great fit in, in Brett Brown's system. And and again, the 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 bench has has been an inconsistency for the Sixers. I, I mean, as it has been for for a lot of teams across the league. Um, but I think in order to have somebody come off the bench and know exactly what you're getting, pretty much from from night to night, uh, would be would be very good in a guy like Marcus Smart. Uh, I think uh, when when Boston was first starting to show interest in Jaleel Okafor, when he wasn't, uh, you know, now on a semi-expiring contract and hasn't played all year, uh, people were were tossing around the idea of of Okafor and some draft assets for Marcus Smart and some draft assets. So I think he's been a guy that some Sixers fans have have kept their eye on over the past couple of years. Uh, I like his game, and he plays with a, short, a sort of toughness uh, as well that we've talked uh, about with like a Rashawn Holmes, Amir Johnson, uh, those guys as well. So, I, I mean, I think he'd fit in the system. Uh, I, I think he would. I think it would be a smart move. Huh? Yeah? Smart? What? 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 Yeah, no. I think it'd be a smart move. I think it would be good for him to come here. And um, he does fit that aggression. He fits that toughness. I think a lot of people were wondering, you know, is he had that kind of attitude thing going into Boston when he when he was drafted with the whole um, when he when he was in college the the fan thing where he uh, got the fan ejected from the game or whatever that was a huge deal um, people were like oh we don't want that you know that uh, that I that trouble that troublema- exactly we don't want that troublemaker here um, but I think he's you saw him mature a lot since then and you saw him turn into a player that pe- that teams want on their team and uh, a, a player that really that people like um, and I think that he kind of embodies that and uh, you know with the bench being as inconsistent as it's been we've seen the bench for the Sixers this year be 
good at time, like really bad at times and then really good at times and then really bad at times again. Um, and I think with smart, he kind of is that guarantee where, you know, what you're like, Jesse said, you know what you're going to get out of him. Um, you know what he's going to do for a team and that he will help this team not hurt it in the long run. And I think that, yeah, you know, if the Sixers, they have a lot of cap space still, they have about $25 million left after the Robert Covington extension. Um, you're you're going to see them try to make moves. And I think that smart would be an, uh, I think he'd be a cost effective uh, guy to get uh, on this team uh, to provide minutes off the bench. What do you think his market value is given the cap constraints that most teams are dealing with? I think he's probably in that maybe like six to $10 million range. If you're signing him for the bench, I could see a rebuilding team throw more at him to entice him. Um, just because I think he's an above average mm-hmm. bench player. He's kind of like, you know, there's a few guys that got signed this year that there, you know, JJ Redick was an example of overpaying to get the guy you want. The Sixers were in the position to do that, but there's plenty of players every year who get more money than they deserve just because a team that's in dire straits needs another piece like an Alan Crabb did, you know, or things such as that. And I think smart could fall into that, but I think, his services will be pursued by a lot of teams that he'll get to pick where he wants to go. I hope you're wrong. <laughs> because we have the same general feeling about him over here. And I, I think you got the, 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 mo- the money amount absolutely spot on, in my opinion. Well, there is another major component to deal with in terms of the rebuilds. And we, if we had a week, we probably couldn't cover all of the trades both teams burned through in those years. But... We went through and highlighted the best trade from each season. And I just wanted to get your guys' opinion on which team pulled off a better best trade of each season. So for an example, in 2014, the, in my opinion, the Celtics' best trade was when they moved Marcus Thornton uh, Marcus Thornton, a 2016 first, which eventually became Scalabissier, and they traded Tayshawn Prince to the Pistons. The Pistons then traded Gigi Datome, Jonas Jerebko to the Celtics, and the Suns, who got Marcus, 13th, uh, Marcus Thornton in that uh, first-round pick of the 2016 with Isaiah Thomas. Now, with you guys, from what I understand, you guys moved – Drew Holiday and Pierre Jackson to the Pels for Nerlens Noel uh, at the draft. I want to say was that the draft? Yeah, it was at the draft. Yep. And then you ended up getting Alfred Payton, also that you moved to uh, Orlando, I think. Yeah. So, is there are there any other trades that year in 2014 that you think might be better on your end? No, I mean I think that's the one that kind of sticks out. Obviously, uh, for you guys, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas is the big get there. Uh, so I think overall, in in any of the trades you look at, uh, whether it's the Drew Holiday uh, to the Pelicans, Spencer Hawes to the Cavs, um, God help us that we had to sit through some Spencer Hawes action for as long as we did, but. Um, Drew Holiday, that Drew Holiday trade, honestly, was kind of like the first trade of the process where you kind of knew uh, that things were going to start going down from there. I was a gigantic Drew Holiday fan, so I wasn't really in love with the deal to start with. Um, but I think what we can 
get out of that trade too is you mentioned that we uh, picked Alfred Payton there and then we eventually dealt him uh, to the Magic a year or two later or a year later for uh, the rights to Dario Saric who, who now is starting for the Sixers. Uh, so I, I think it worked out well for both teams. Obviously, uh, the fruits of the Boston trade that year uh, now k- technically netted them uh, Kyrie Irving, which isn't a bad thing at all. Uh, and uh, obviously, it got the Sixers uh, w- one of their best offensive rebounders and and uh, international player that that is that is definitely sure to play into their plans in the coming years. So in 2015, I think I think you guys probably didn't have quite the same level. Like, I think I think Boston really was winning the trade battle early on, but you guys got some better stuff in. Later in 2015, we had the trade that brought Dwight Powell and Rondo out of Boston and brought in Jay Crowder, Jameer Nelson, Brandon Wright, and Gershon Yabusele. Now, as we said before, Yabusele hasn't really done much, you know, worthy of consideration. Brandon Knight, Brandon, Brandon Knight, Brandon Wright, excuse me, had a couple of good games for Boston. Jameer Nelson also, but really, Jay Crowder was the surprise pickup for that one. He's not doing so good over in Cleveland right now. And I think it's really largely system based, but I, I do think that he's a really good player. That said, you guys had a trade in China. Sent KJ McDaniels, who last time I checked, he's out of the league now, right? Yeah. If, if he's not out of the league, he's, he's definitely not getting any minutes anywhere anyway. And he's been really promising. If I remember right for a little while, he just never seemed to work out, but you guys, you guys got Rishon Holmes out of him, which you guys seem, you know, as, as per our conversation to be pretty into that. But what are your thoughts on, on each of the trades in, in that year? I think Jay Crowder was one of them. I mean, he was a second round pick in his draft class and everybody was saying out of that class that he was going to be the sleeper to emerge. And then for Dallas to give up on him after a year, I mean, look at what it's yielded for Boston. He gave them great play for his run there, but then you flip him in a deal that lands you Kyrie Irving. Um, as valuable as I think Rashawn Holmes is against his cost, I think you really can't beat the value of Jay Crowder in that scenario. I also, I mean, Jameer Nelson's a Philly guy, St. Joe's. Um, I mean, I loved watching him at St. Joe's. I, love, I still follow his NBA career. He's one of my favorite players to watch, but... I don't remember him doing much in Boston, and I don't even think it matters. I think the value they got with Jay Crowder, with the cost he came with, I mean, when they just traded him, he was considered the most valuable, most cost-effective contract in the NBA. And that's just what the guy is. He's a defensive stopper. He can contribute offense. He's an all-around efficient player, more so than any other player in those trades that you just mentioned. Yeah, and I just just to jump in really quickly, I know the highlighted one on here is KJ McDaniels to the Rockets for Isaiah Cannon, but I think the big deal that year was definitely uh, trading Carter Williams, uh, rookie of the year, to the Bucks for uh, 2018 first, which which pretty much allowed the Sixers to be able to uh, have the ability to trade up for Markel Fultz. Um, so again, I, I think the reigning. Uh, at that time, rookie of the year, a lot of people just didn't know what the hell was going on because they traded Carter Williams and KJ McDaniels like almost right after each other. So you thought that you were getting a nice young core for the process to grow. Uh, and then you see them both shipped out. But again, you turn MCW 
uh, into a first round picks that allows you to turn it into Markel Fultz. I mean, we all know what happens and what happened to Michael Carter Williams. Yeah. He had half a good season with the Bucks, and now he's rotting away with the Hornets. Uh, so I love me some Rashawn Holmes, but I think that big trade the that year in '15 was definitely when. Uh, you know, that that's when it all came down. Like the Drew Holiday deal was the first thing for me, but it all came falling down. I didn't know what the hell was going on when Michael Carter Williams was traded for, for to the Bucks for a first rounder. Yeah. Now, now look at what happened with, you know, with them, the way that the Sixers are even like you, you, you can't even like really put Mark Michael Carter Williams on this team anymore in terms of like what he could have turned into. Like he was the rookie of the year and they traded him and then it turned into something. So, I mean, it definitely paid off. So in 2016, you guys, you have a couple of ones and I wasn't real sure about which you really think was the best. I mean, you had, you turned, I think a pair of second rounders into Ish Smith, who is looking, you know, Definitely worth more than a pair of second rounders. Detroit. Not that he's not with you guys anymore. He where is he now? Detroit. He's with I the thought. Pistons. Yeah. yeah. They they could have signed they could have signed him in free agency, but instead opted not to, and then they traded two second round picks for him. So there's that. You guys also traded Kendall Marshall uh, and ended up getting picks that turned into Jonah Bolden, Alpha Kaba. Uh, it's really too early to say what's going to be going on with that, in my opinion. I, mean, I will say keep an eye on Jonah Bolden in the coming years because he looks like he's going to be a real player. Really? Yeah, I haven't caught too much of him. Maybe tell us about him a little bit. Tremendous athleticism. I mean, he's already got man strength. He showed that in some – he played in yeah. summer league. Yeah, he's already. Yeah, he's great rebounder. Amazing energy. Um, amazing ability to get up. He can block shots. He can shoot with range. Great rebounder. The guy's going to be a do it all four. And if he's going to be our first big off the bench, that's going to be really scary. The energy he brings, like we talked about, Rashawn Holmes' energy. I think Bolden can bring more energy. Right now, he's playing in Israel, playing really well in Israel, but he'll be over next year. And I think he's going to make a lot of noise when he comes over. Yeah, that year we just had the only real trade of note was Chris Babb and Gerald Wallace to the Warriors for David Lee, which, I mean, let's be honest, Gerald Wallace and Chris Babb weren't doing anything for anybody and really haven't since. And David Lee didn't do too much for us. He was kind of a big disappointment, particularly after how he saw he did later on moving on from the Celtics. But in 2017, we had, you know, small trade. Well, also in in sixteen, I you, we didn't really talk about it, but that that was the pick swap trade. So, I mean, the the fact is that you know you traded uh, to the Kings, and Sam Hickey completely fleeced uh, Vladi Divac, and you got you know, yourself the the pick that turned into that number three pick for uh, Jason Tatum and the ni- number nineteen first, and then you traded that along with the the, the pick that you got from Michael Carter Williams, and then you put it all together, and poof. We got a we got a deal to get Markel Fultz from Boston. So and even that 19 first in that deal, that looks like it's going to be poised to be a top five pick. So besides that, there's also the regular season and playoff records to compare. But let's be honest, with Sam Hickey running the show, it was not supposed to. Not really comparable. You know, Boston did a lot better in terms of regular season records. You know, I think they, they did like something to the tune of like six games and then 20 something games and then almost 40 games better throughout the course of the year. 
the, the, the years. And playoffs, you know, it's, it's not really very comparable in that the way they were made to be going in terms of rebuilds. But coaching, you know, a lot of people around the league seem very interested in Brett Brown. So I would really like to hear your opinions of your own coach and then Brad Stevens. I love Brett Brown. He he's fantastic. Uh, even even those days where they won ten games in an entire year, uh, you could hear the enthusiasm in his voice to come to work every day. Uh, you could hear how much he loved working with the players that he had on his roster at the time. And I think what we got to experience, we were so focused on the process and the players going through the process and the assets that were acquired during the process. But I think that entire time really helped Brett Brown develop as a coach. And even though like after the Sixers lost to the Kings uh, by a buzzer beater and after they lost to the Warriors twice, so you'll have Sixers fans calling for Brett Brown's job and you'll you'll have that pretty much anywhere but his enthusiasm his uh, I mean I, I sat in on one of his press conferences last week when after the Portland game and and just you can hear the passion in his voice and I think he has the locker room the the players respect him uh, and I think he's finally getting the players uh, on the roster that can fit into his system uh, and fit really well and I think you, you can credit the development of guys like Robert Covington to to Brett Brown. Um, you know, Robert Covington is a guy that Sam Hinkie got out of the D League years ago, and now he was signed to a four year, sixty four million dollar extension because he's one of the top defenders in the league. And uh, you know, his three point shooting has gone really up even even after uh, shooting zero for nine on Monday against Cleveland, but. That's not here nor there. I mean, I love me some Brett Brown. He's great. Uh, I'm equally a big fan of Brad Stevens. Uh, I think it goes along with Danny, Danny Ainge, too. I think during the time that they were acquiring assets and kind of treading water, um, I think Stevens was kind of like almost seen on, on the hot seat. And I could be wrong here, but I think a lot of people thought that he was going to lose his job after last season. Is that correct? There were some people who were talking about that. Personally, I always thought that that was, you know, just a hot take. But you you are definitely right. There were a significant number of people who were at least worried about that, if not calling for it. Yeah, I mean, I think Brad Stevens is is hands down one of the best young coaches in the game uh, in, in quite some time. And, and he has a fantastic roster to work with, too. Uh, you know, getting Kyrie as a, as a veteran guy who who leads your team, and and you have such a good group of young and upcoming guys uh, with Tatum and and Jalen Brown, and again, I think he's done great with with what he's been given, and I think it's showing. Well, it showed a lot last year, and and it's still showing this year even more when they lost Hayward. Yeah, and considering that the Celtics, you know, from last year, they were now they're a completely different team, pretty much. You guys like pretty much blasted your entire roster and it's pretty much different and you guys were the number one seed last year and this year you're you're 18 and four and playing incredible basketball once again so um the fact that you know stevens can you know he coached he's pretty much coaching a whole different roster this year compared to last year um and i've always liked stevens when he was uh the head coach at butler because i i grew up watching that game and i remember that game clearly Gordon Hayward and Matt Howard and those guys um, and the, the way he coached that game very very uh, he, he coached Butler a mid-major school to two straight national championship games they didn't win them 
but they got there. And I think that says a lot about how young he is, how good he is as a young coach in the NBA and, and how he's doing with this team. And I, I really like him a lot. And I, I like Brett Brown a lot too. Um, and I think that, you know, he's been given a bad rap just because of, you know, what he's had to work with over the last couple of years. But um, Stevens, I really, really like, and I think he's a great coach for this uh, young Boston team. With Brett Brown, you can't look at the record at all. If anyone wants to point out that he hasn't won games and they're not looking at the right thing, the way I measure Brett Brown is the fact that he had to lose. Not that he was trying to lose. He never quit a single game, and none of the players in the process ever quit a single game. So the notion that the the team tried to lose is wrong. Hinky was planning on losing, but the players did try to win. They just they were playing with you know half a deck of cards, and, and it was but Brett Brown did. What's that? It was an intentional half deck of cards too. It was it was intentionally undermining. And as as a Celtics fan, I think. For most of the educated Celtics fan, not educated, that's probably the wrong word. Most of the non-casual Celtics fans, I think we, we were all aware of the fact that that's that's what was going on with Brett Brown. You know, he yeah, but I don't think Brett athlete. Brown Brett Brown took the job kind of aware of that situation. But I don't think Brett Absolutely. Brown ever he never gave up, and those players he had never gave up. And the fact that the players he had that he was managed to getting, you know, a Tony Roten or you know. <laughs> a Furkan Aldemir to go out there and play their hardest when they knew there was no chance at winning the game. You know, it's got to be so hard for these players that first off, they know they're not NBA players. They know they have no chance to win, but they're still trying their hardest every single possession. And he did that for four years and he never lost the locker room. And I think that's the biggest thing that Brett Brown has done. Well, he's developed those TJ McConnell's and those Robert Covington's, and even guys that have left, um, Dwayne Dedman having a really good year in Atlanta. You know, I think there's these guys that have spent time with Brett. Was Vucevic with him or was he a Doug Collins guy? I think he was Collins. Either way, that was another one where he was good before we let him go. We just didn't give him time to grow. But uh, yeah. with Brett Brown, I mean, he's coming off the Popovich tree and he has shown that he is without a doubt like just a leader of men and his leading style isn't with an iron fist. You know, he really, he kind of coddles these guys. He's very fair to his players and that has translated really well, especially to the young crop of players, you know, where I feel, I feel like Joel Embiid would run through a wall for Brett Brown after all the time that Brett Brown supported him through two years of sitting out and then getting in now just a relationship he's built. You know, if there's kind of a feeling that, or there was a feeling, I don't know if it still exists because Brett Brown's performing very well this year, that Brian Colangelo came in with Brett Brown not being his guy, that he inherited Brett Brown and that it was a guy he was going to look to part from. If he was if he was to get rid of Brett Brown, I think this team would turn on Colangelo and the fan base would turn on Colangelo because Brett Brown, you talk about these process soldiers. That's the word we use in Philly. We call them soldiers of the process, like a Tony Roden, a Henry Sims. Brett Brown is the ultimate soldier of the process. He's the guy that had to sit there. He was the guy that was there for every single game. Roten wasn't. Covington wasn't there for every single game. He was there for most of them. Brett Brown was there every single game, and he never quit, and he survived the process. And now that he's finally getting NBA talent, he's showing what he can do with it, and that's showing that he's a very good coach. I think Brad Stevens is a phenomenal coach as well. Um, The fact that he lost Gordon Hayward, who's a guy that, 
he builds his system around. It's a system he had in college. He coached Gordon Hayward. He knew how to use him, and that's what he was planning on doing. And to lose him for the season on the first night of the year, and then for him to turn it around so quick and incorporate all these new pieces overnight and go on a long winning streak like that just speaks to how great of a coach he is. I think in this division, we're going to have two great coaches for a long time, and it's really exciting. So I have a question. You kind of touched on it earlier, but Evan Turner, Nerlens Noel, Joel Okafor, apart from the injury aspects, what are your thoughts on why they haven't stuck with Philadelphia? Is it just the, the nature of the process? Are there, you know, back, you know, front office stuff going on? Like, wh- wh- why do you think they haven't been able to hang on to some of these higher profile picks? I, th- I think it's a combination of, of a different thing. Uh, I think Evan Turner was more of a victim of the process. I think Hinky came in and, and Turner was on that team. So uh, th- I think that combined with the fact that Turner just never produced. Uh, I mean, you got him second overall and he never really played up to, to what everybody thought he was. Again, he was not going to be like the second coming of Allen Iverson or anything, but he didn't stick because he didn't perform. And I think Sam Hinkie saw, uh, saw, saw that and and dealt him. Uh, I forget exactly what he traded him for. Um, I don't think Nerlens Noel stuck, obviously, because he was going to command more money, even though he took less to stay in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm of the impression that Nerlens Noel is an elite defender, but his offensive game will keep him from getting paid and keep him from being a starting center in the NBA. He's kind of like the opposite of a Jaleel Okafor. Okafor has offensive gifts, but doesn't uh, doesn't perform well defensively, and it's kind of the other way around for Nerlens, who who doesn't even play minutes anymore for the Mavericks. I mean, he he does not even play we'll anymore. This. So yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. Yeah, he t- he turned down uh, seventy million dollars over four years for a one year four four million dollar qualifying offer or just a contract, and and that's not looking great because now he's not playing, and if this trend keeps up, he's going to get less money than he expected before. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have the Evan Turners and the Nerlens Noels and, and guys that don't stick for different reasons. Uh, I wish Thaddeus Young would have stuck. He was, he's my favorite. He's one of my favorite all time Sixers. Uh, and he's still producing at his age for the Pacers. Uh, so again, I, th- I think it's a combination of a bunch of different things. Uh, once Sam Hinkie came in and started wheeling and dealing, uh, with, with Drew Holiday and, and, um, uh, you know, KJ McDaniels and Michael Carter Williams. I think you knew that that everybody on that team, their days were numbered if they didn't uh, perform up to his standards. So, do you guys have any Boston-oriented questions that maybe I can answer for you? What is the role that Marcus Morris is filling for you guys right now? Because he's kind of your four, but he's played three most of his career. And uh, I mean, how you, you mentioned Aaron Baines too, but. Is has is that worrying anybody in Boston about the lack of depth on the front court after Horford? It's a big worry. It's really the one position that we, I think, are looking to fill, if not in the draft, uh, in a midseason trade. I am personally pretty happy. Yeah, maybe you never know. And it depends. <laughs> you never know. Um, I don't think so, guys. Sorry. But oh man. 
But as far as Morris is concerned, we've got this this nagging knee issue that has you know been keeping him out of back to backs, and I think limiting his effectiveness. He's been shooting the three okay. He shot it better in the past. He's a little slow. He's kind of been playing his way into game shape, which is why they're they're giving him the time off. I think that he could end up sticking if he does get into game shape and starts producing, particularly if he can. You know, they don't really need him to rebound at the four, but they do need some shooting. They need, they need some kind of replacement for, for Hayward that, you know, these two young guys that have stepped into, you know, outsized roles, given, given what happened, they're doing a great job. But I, you know, the playoffs are a different animal, and I am not – more so with, with Jalen, I'm confident that, that he can hang at least a, a bit because he has – but, you know, even at the end of the streak versus Miami, I saw I saw Jason Tatum feeling himself a little bit more than he should and making some rookie mistakes. And on a big stage, if they're doing well, I could see that happening again. And I'm not real confident that Morris is the guy who's going to be able to back him up. So he may end up on his way out as salary filler, you know, higher value salary filler, don't get me wrong, with someone like a Marcus Smart or Gershon Yabuselli and you know, you can put a, a good amount of cash into a deal in the new CBA. So in my mind, he's he's a very contingent player, depending on how the rest of the season plays out. Uh, my, my questions about Marcus Smart, I know we talked about him earlier uh, regarding how he could be a potentially good free agent pickup for the Sixers. And, and obviously his big thing is, is defense, but do you, do you look anything or are you concerned at all regarding his, his offense? I mean, he's barely shooting over 31% and uh, is not even shooting 29% from three. So, I mean, at what point do you, do you give somebody more minutes? I mean, he's, he's playing nearly 31 minutes a game. So I'm just curious as to see what you see the trajectory there. And if they eventually try to get rid of him for, you know, some draft assets if they can get him since he's on an expiring contract. I think that, okay, so first of all, and you probably heard this, and I know our listeners have heard this, you know, ad nauseum, what he does that doesn't show up in the box score is absolutely crucial. However, I am also of the mind, I mean, it's a lost possession when, you know, you're chucking above the break three-pointer that, Anyone who pays attention to their stats should know they're not going to make unless unless they have a game like they had against Detroit, where miraculously he comes out of nowhere and hits like 70 to 80% of his shots, which weirdly enough, as Chris Forsberg of ESPN pointed out today, uh, we tend to lose those games. So I don't know what the connection there is, but personally, I would be yanking him a little bit more when he gets that that not hot hand where he's just like heat check Marcus all over the place and and completely seemingly oblivious that he doesn't know where his spots are. He is pretty solid from the corner from three and near the basket. You know, his finishing could use some improvement. But if if he played within his skill set in terms of offense, he could be at least an effective, if not good player on offense, which would really improve his value in my opinion. I'm sure yours is also that said, it really, you know, again, with, with Morris, it, it's going to be really dependent, not just on what happens this season in terms I, – I don't – I just don't see his offense turning around at this point. I really don't. It's been season after season. He's His his version of the 15 pounds of muscle in the off seasons. I've got an outside shot, and he just never does. 
Part of that may be because of the, the effort he expends on defense, but really it's going to come down to what people offer him. And I think if he crosses the $12 million threshold, I think he's going to end up walking on us. So we have the games coming up this week. And between our teams, we're meeting up with you guys on Thursday, I believe. A lot of us were hoping that we were going to finally see Jason Tatum versus Markel Fultz, but from what I hear, he's still about a week away. Is that still still holding uh, true for you guys? Yeah, I think he's being reevaluated. Uh, like a week and a half ago, they said he was going to be reevaluated in two to three weeks, so still no timetable. Yeah. Well. So who knows when we'll see him next? We, we have a couple more games with you guys this year, I think. Two more games. So hopefully we'll get at least yeah. one out of two. Knock on wood. One, one's in London. So uh, that's the other Sixers home game. We don't actually get a home game. It's actually in London. So so that's yeah, fun. That's, <laughs> how's, that, how's that affecting you guys' schedule? I know for us, at least, we've really front-loaded the crap out of our schedule. And it's it's been a little bit brutal despite the win, the win streak. I'm actually, you know, I'm not going to say anything about injuries because that would be stupid how is the schedule you know playing out for you guys because of that like compression overseas are they giving you guys a bunch of games either in the front or the back of the season you guys been paying attention is that the one in january january 18th is that that one or is it the 11th uh it might be the 11th one at 3 p.m yeah uh i mean they they the game that they have before that is on january the 5th so i mean that's that's six days until actual game day uh, so I think they kind of prepare them fine, like they have a good layoff. And then after the 11th, they don't have another game until the 15th. And then on the 18th, we play you guys again. So it's it's rapid fire Celtic Sixers. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the schedule shaped up pretty well. I'm kind of happy where the Sixers are right now at 11 and 8. And I think they've had the toughest schedule in the NBA to this point. So, But yeah, I mean, looking forward, it, it looks like they'll they'll have plenty of time. I don't think it'll affect them a, a whole lot. So, what do you guys think the keys for beating Boston are in this next matchup? My big one for this one is the ball movement. That's what the Sixers have done extremely well this season. And when they've been at their best, it's been when they're moving the ball. Um, Ben Simmons is obviously a big part of that. But even the other night against Orlando when Simmons was out, I mean, the Sixers scored 130 points, and a lot of them were coming off assists. And that's where this team's bread and butter is. Um, when they are connecting on their passes that way, they make teams look silly. It doesn't matter how good you are defensively. They have just passed right through defenses to find open looks for whoever they want to get the open look to. Um, I don't know the actual number, but I know that there's been multiple nights this year where 60 to 70% of field goals have come off of assists. And I think if the Sixers can stay true to that and play that style of game, they can hang with any team in the NBA, and that includes Boston. Well, bench scoring is definitely part of how Boston is going to need to keep up with you guys. I definitely agree on that. And, you know, pertinent to what we were just talking about, Marcus Smart not shooting inside of the game is also, you know, it's going to be important, particularly if MB is there. You can have him for Jaleel Okafor if you want. I'll, I'll discuss it with Danny. I don't, I don't know how uh, into that it'll be, but uh, yeah. But no, seriously, stopping Embiid—that—that that for me in my mind, that's the big, big thing, and it's also one of the duh kind of you know observations. What kind of great basketball mind needs to come up with that? Yeah. But 
you know, touching on what you were saying too, disrupting Simmons passing is going to be the big issue. And I've been calling Boston's defense a thicket because I mean, even, even guards like Terry Rosier has a seven foot wingspan. And when, when you have that many guys, you know, six, seven to six, 10 on the floor at a time, it gets really hard to keep passing lanes open consistently. So I think you guys taking us out of that and us taking you out of your passing, that I think is going to be apart from the obvious indeed stoppage, the key for either team. Yeah. And I think the bench is going to play a big part for the Sixers as well. Uh, They've been very inconsistent. I think they're towards the bottom of the league in field goal percentage. Uh, in both three and just from the floor. And it's going to be equally as important for, for Philly uh, going into this Boston game because that's the second second uh, half of a back-to-back for them. So there's a good chance Embiid, or there, there, there's a chance Embiid could not play. Uh, Simmons is, is questionable going into uh, the first end of the back-to-back against uh, Washington on Wednesday. So there, there's still a lot of question marks, but obviously going into the second half of a back-to-back, the bench is going to need to play a really big part, and it's going to need to be even bigger, especially if, if Simmons isn't cleared to play and, and Embiid doesn't play that night either. So it could really go either way, but I think the benches are going to kind of play a big part for both of them. And I know I mentioned it before we started recording, but I think it's very important to, to so that the Sixers don't forget about a guy like Al Horford uh, behind the three-point line during the first meeting. They left him open way too often, and he hit three of seven. Uh, you know, they, it's just too many open shots, and he's one of those versatile guys that you kind of forget that he has that range, uh, but he does. So, I mean, I'm interested to see. I hope Embiid and Simmons plays so we can get a good uh, – you know, sight as to where the Sixers are compared to the Celtics. Um, but yeah, I think bench scoring and, and obviously the injuries are going to play a little bit of a part too. So can yeah. you guys give me a, so go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that the other key for the game, I think for me and for the Sixers would be that, you know, that we brought up the fact that when they do uh, take shots, shooting, uh, shooting three pointers, when they're cold, they're really cold. And when they're hot, they're really hot. It depends on what, what's going on. But if they are cold, stop shooting bricks, just stop shooting those balls um, for certain players that really can't make those threes. You know, J.J. Redick has been really good at times this season, but he's also struggled a little bit more than the $23 million that we gave him um, for one season. Uh, but, you know, he he's had two games this year with, what was that, Jesse? Eight three-pointers? Two, games, uh, two eight, games this year? Which is one off of the Sixers franchise record. Correct. So, I mean, that is unbelievable. So, when they're hot, they're hot. Uh, but when they're cold... They're cold, and the, the problem is they don't know when to stop. They don't know when they're cold sometimes. You know, we see it on TV, and, and if we're at the game watching the game, and then we're just, like, you know, shouting at them to stop shooting three-pointers um, because they're thinking that if we take more shots, there's a better chance of them going in eventually. Um, but if it's not working, you got to figure out other ways to get those points on the board. Well, if you do steal Marcus Smart from us, he'll fit right in. Oh, yeah. Well, for me, with uh, you tell you talk about stopping Embiid, and going off Josh's point about stop shooting bricks. I mean, Embiid is part of that too. Really, what stops Embiid is himself. Um, mm. I haven't seen a player really stop Embiid this year. I'm not sure there is one. I thought DeAndre Jordan would be it, and 
Embiid absolutely schooled him. <laughs> and he forgot Willie Reed's name. Yeah, so. and he forgot Willie Reed's name. <laughs> but for that to happen, I mean, this is a guy that's shown just an unstoppable skill set in terms of how he can play away from the rim and right up against the rim. And I know Horford is having a defensive player of the year worthy start to the year. So it'll definitely be something to watch. But right. what Embiid has done is, I mean, we saw it against Cleveland the other night. He scored 30 on Cleveland. I thought he should have had 50 because he was doing anything he wanted on the post. Kevin Love and Channing Fry and whoever else drew the short straw and had to guard him could not handle him one bit. He forces them to draw fouls, get in foul trouble, and he gets N1s at will because he can finish so well. But then he'll decide to start going away from the basket and shooting fadeaways or going out to shoot the three. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to overcomplicate it. When it's working like that, Mm -hmm. just stay under the basket and do what he does best. Because if he does that, he score all night long. And to be clear about Embiid is that like his three-point shot was his bread and butter a couple times last season. And then this year, at the beginning of the year, he started shooting at three more often, getting at the top of the key and taking shots off of there and not falling against the Celtics the first time they played. He was 0 for 6 from downtown. So, um, And then since then, he hasn't really – every once in a while, he does that little uh, pump fake where he'll uh, he'll look like he's going to shoot a 3, and then he ends up driving to the rim down uh, right down the middle. Um, he hasn't really taken a whole lot of 3s since the beginning of the year. Um, and I think that's what does him well because I think Embiid has that kind of, you know, mentality where he can get that three. Um, if, if he takes, you know, two or three of those shots, he might get, you know, two or three makes, but, um, he's not taking, you know, six or seven three point attempts a game like he was kind of doing at the beginning of the year. So give me some predictions, guys, before we get out of here. Who do you think is going to win? Give me an idea of what you think the score will be and name me a stand-up player from your team. Uh, I think the Celtics win this one. Uh, I'm just not a huge fan of back-to-backs and, ha- and again, not knowing who's going to play and who's not going to play and also seeing how they performed against Cleveland. Uh, I think they'll win against uh, Washington tomorrow, but I think they'll lose to the Celtics uh, 118 to 102. Josh? Uh, yeah, I, I think the Celtics are going to win this. Um, I think the Celtics are a way better team than the, the Sixers on a, a lot of different levels. They're, you know, more complete in certain aspects. And like Brandon said, back to backs are just hard for the Sixers. I mean, I don't, you know, they've had games this year. They haven't had a game like they had against, uh, the Pistons or the Raptors earlier on in the year where they were absolutely outplayed on all aspects. I think Jesse covered that game and it was the worst game he's ever covered. I'm pretty sure. Right, Jesse? I was livid after that game. <laughs> that was terrible. Um, so I, I think that the Celtics are gonna are gonna play really. I think the Sixers are gonna play hard. Um, but I think that not knowing who's going to play in this game, um, you don't really know what's gonna happen. I think the Celtics win this game. Um, and I think it's gonna be you know, one eighteen one hundred two sounds good. I I don't know. I, I think that it'll be like a twenty point game, an eighteen point game, something like that. Um, but you know the Sixers. I think they win against Washington on Wednesday and then lose at Boston on Thursday. Yeah, I think if uh, if Embiid and Simmons both play this game. True. I mean, it's really a toss-up. Simmons is with a sprained ankle right now. He's questionable for Wednesday against Washington. And then Embiid, we still don't know if he's allowed to play back-to-back shit. He, the first back-to-back of the year, he sat out one leg of it. 
So if he isn't allowed to play, we don't know which leg he's going to sit out. But assuming they both play, I'm going to say the safe pick is Celtics still win. I, I envision a very big game for Kyrie Irving. Um, I think mm. he got very angry in Philadelphia last time because the fans were because I was at that game. Yeah. The fans were really razzing him about um, his old teammate. So I think he's got a little something to prove to Philly. I think we put a bit of a target on our back, similar to the fan that, you know, gave the double bird to Russell Westbrook at last season's season opener. So I think they gave Kyrie a reason, and you don't want to do that. But if Embiid and Simmons both play, I think it's one of these games that will come down to one of the final possessions. And I only say that because of how Simmons is coming off the worst game of the season against Cleveland. And he's such a fiery guy that he just wants to constantly be great, that he's going to do everything he can to build off of that. And then with Embiid's comments after that game that he said he thought it was good that the Sixers got whooped by the Cavs and he thinks it was a great learning experience tells me that his mindset is he's looking for redemption. And a motivated Embiid, we saw it against the Lakers. It is a scary thing. And even with how good Al Horford is playing this year, I don't think there's a force on this planet that can stop a motivated Embiid. Um, but it, I tend to agree. Yeah. I tend to agree. I think it's going to be a lot closer than, than many people think. I think it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 90-92. Boston is good at holding teams to low scores this season. But if both of your, your guys play, I do think it's going to be very close. I do think that for you guys, if – it's gonna. I think it's gonna be Simmons. To be perfectly honest, if you guys beat us or stay close, it's gonna really depend on Simmons' play. And I'm gonna say that Marcus Smart is going to be our standout player if we have one, not Kyrie Irving. And I don't really have a good reason because you know when he shoots well we lose, when he shoots poorly we win. But he's just this really weird enigma that really has not earned the place offensively, at least in the conversation that we've been having today in most people's eyes for the Celtics faithful, maybe, but it's really interesting that you guys, you know, seem so high on Marcus smart, given to what I've heard from a lot of people around the league, you guys working on anything that uh, we should be mentioning that you want to plug? Uh, I, I mean, we write things all the time. Um, so, uh, I mean, we'll have our preview and recap and all that kind of stuff on game day for the, uh, for the uh on thursday and you know we do previews and recaps for every game so um and then you know every once in a while we got some sick live tweets oh live yeah we we live tweet a lot on our six Philadelphia twitter feed and jesse is a master tweeter as like as i like to put it so uh that's always fun a lot of sass a lot of sass it's all about all about the sass. You People know, love sass themselves a nice, healthy helping of sass. It's true. Well, for regular listeners, this little bit is going to be pretty familiar. Check out the links at the type of Celticslife.com. We have a very, very large variety of shirts and hoodies. You can't get them anywhere else. They are distinct to Celticslife.com. You can even get tickets to this game or any game that you are willing to travel to underneath that heading. You can find the pod on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and most podcatcher apps. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, you know what to do. Five stars. If you don't like something or you have a suggestion, let us know anywhere where there's a place where you can comment, whether it's a Celtics Life article, Twitter, 
can use the hashtag CLPod, that's C-L-P-O-D. We're always trying to bring you the Celtics coverage the way you want, the way you like it. And with that, I'm going to take off. It's going to be a wicked long pod to edit, and I'm really excited to do it. I want people to hear this. It's just a lot of fun. We should do this again. Yeah. So you guys got anything you want to say before we take off? Uh, trust, uh, the go process. Process. Yeah, trust the process. Trust the process. Twitter. I knew it. I knew it. Thank God. Yeah, and uh, care, make y'all. sure to give us a follow. Uh, we appreciate you you having us on, Justin. Uh, make sure to give us a follow at Sixerdelphia on Twitter. Uh, it's spelled exactly as it sounds, uh, and it's part of SportsTalkPhilly.com. And uh, we're going to start uh, brewing up a, a lot of our own episode, episodes of the Pick Swap podcast, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to put this crossover on you where it's uh where it's more celtics based as well nice looking forward to it take care y'all